Hey everybody, Zach Boschman here. Hey, just wanted to give you a heads up. This week's episode is hosted by Peter Castaño. He is the other co-owner of CitizenTruth.org. Just wanted to give you a heads up, in case you notice a different voice uh, asking the questions on this week's podcast. Our guest is uh, Dr. Glenn Dyson, uh, and this is a very interesting conversation. So, as always, comment, subscribe, leave us a review, you know, let us know what you think. Much love. Talk to you soon. Podcast. We are honored today to have Dr. Glenn Dyson um, come speak with us. He's the author of uh, Europe as the Western Peninsula of Greater Eurasia and uh, many other really outstanding and um, incisive uh, analyses. I actually first came uh, across his work from Pepe Escobar, the journalist, and I really see Dr. Dyson as one of the top analysts of our era. It really helped us. Really helped me clarify some of these mystifying, confusing things going on right now. So, Dr. Dyson, I was hoping you could start by just giving us an um, overview of Europe as the Western Peninsula of Greater Eurasia, um, your view on the big frame um, shifting dynamic, geopolitical dynamics of our era. Um, yeah, so just can start. Sure. And uh, yeah, thank you for that introdu- kind introduction, by the way. <laughs> So, well, I, I argue that um, regions such as the West are largely uh, economic constructs. So Europe has been part of this uh, transatlantic or Western region under U.S. leadership uh, since the Second World War. Now, sim- simply because the U.S. has been uh, the main economic power during this time. Uh, however, now that the power is shifting towards the East, uh, and the U.S. has been in relative decline. I argue that the new region is forming. Uh, um, again, a, a greater Eurasian region. This is not my term. This is uh, what Russia actually refers to it and they use in the partnership with China. Now, the greater Eurasian region, the envision goes from the Atlantic to the Pacific, so encompassing this entire Eurasian continent. And with this Chinese-Russian partnership at the center. So subsequently, uh, Europe is divided between two regions, that is, is, it becomes part of the transatlantic region and also part of greater Eurasia. Now, many might say that Europe will not choose the East or greater Eurasia over the US. And indeed, I I would argue that they they probably will try to find a balancing way, a manner to balance. However, I argue that this shift towards the greater Eurasia is already happening. Because as we see, despite US opposition and threats of sanctions, the Europeans are already buying Chinese high-tech products and systems such as 5G that 
underpins future technological platforms of this fourth industrial revolution. Germany built, uh, finished building a pipeline with Russia, also despite threats of sanctions from the US. Uh, Turkey bought uh, Russian weapon systems despite sanctions from the US. Uh, a lot of European states have signed up for China's Belt and Road Initiative. And we also see that the Europeans themselves are concerned about American payment systems and begin to use alternatives. And uh, I, I guess the first indication of all of this was the launch, uh, China's launch of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank in 2015. At this point in time, the US cautioned all its allies that this was a rival to the US-led IMF and they should all ignore it. Uh, instead, all of US major allies joined it uh, with the exception of Japan. And, and this is what we see as economic power, uh, power shift to the East and dependencies shift to the East. The political loyalties have a tendency to follow, and we see evidence of this now. So, um, I'll simply put that the interests of the US and Europe are therefore splitting to some extent, and Washington attempts to get the economic loyalties from the Europeans. Uh, but the leading theme in Europe these days is how can we become more economically independent from the US? So, how to assert strategic autonomy and achieve European so sovereignty? Uh, so, we don't have to follow in the US footsteps. Um, so, so, so that is uh, uh, the main theme of the book. Excellent. Um, and could you go a little more in depth into something you brought up there, which is sort of a uh, the high tech rivalry between the U.S. and China taking place in Europe, and sort of the wedge tactics going on to uh, of the great powers to to get a foothold in there. And you go through a lot of examples from Greece to uh, Italy of of uh, bilateral relations versus the uh, big frame situation. So if, if you could go into that. Well, uh, it's important to first look at how uh, China and the United States ended up in, this, uh, ten in, in these tensions, because towards the end of the 80s and early 90s, um, the trade agreements appeared to uh, be built around some international division of labor. That is, the U.S. would do the high end of uh, uh, of, of uh, uh, yeah, well, production at the in the uh, global value chains. So it would uh, do the innovations, and uh, China would be at the lower end doing the you know manufacturing assembly. So in very simple terms, the United States would invent the iPhone, and you know China would uh, uh, assemble it. Uh, but as we've seen over time, uh, Russia, uh, sorry, China has been uh, very quickly climbing up global value chains, and uh, now it's in a position where effectively it can make the iPhone of tomorrow and assemble it as well. So the foundation of this division of labor between the United States and China has disrupted uh, to a large extent. Uh, so uh, this is something that I think uh, Donald Trump <laughs> pointed out, but uh, uh, there was, uh, which was a reasonable argument, uh, you know, say what you will about uh, his other uh, in policies, but but this was uh, something that was uh, recognized, something that also been therefore repeated by uh, by the next administration. So um, so so this is kind of important because uh, economic uh, power it tends to uh, well this is where a lot of political loyalties uh, originate. So there's a lot of good examples. You have uh, you, you mentioned Greece, uh, uh, the, the Chinese bought uh, bought up the port there and. Uh, from there on, they're developing infrastructure further in uh, into Europe. So they have these different bridgeheads. They're working now with Russia to develop this, you know, uh, northern sea route in order to uh, connect the east and west through the Arctic. 
uh, have a uh, well uh, this uh, launch of this 5G technology now across Europe and uh, this is quite important because 5G technology is uh, is considered the nervous system of uh, all our new uh, technologies coming along associated with this fourth industrial revolution which is just defined as when the or to some extent when the digital uh, technologies can manipulate the physical world so your self-driving cars automation so uh, all these 5g technologies will underpin the uh, you know the ability of cars to for example you know talk to each other and uh, 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 well be able to uh, uh, what's the word i'm looking for uh, to, uh, to 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 um, to, yeah, to exchange all the information necessary so there's a lot of um uh, this yeah, a, a huge vast of, uh, array of uh, different economic projects which are being used which are connecting now Europe together with Asia and again that's the concept of Eurasia it's you know Europe and Asia are often considered two separate continents but now they're kind of coming uh, more together and this has uh, been a uh, this has been a yeah it disrupted a larger process because in the world we can for the past uh, for a long time now we've had effectively three uh, major economic regions you had north america western europe and east asia now the us has been able to establish its central position in the world uh, after the second world war by putting western europe and east asia kind of under the us authorities by having these two regions of uh, transatlantic region and you know the asia pacific region however now we see that uh, uh, these efforts to integrate Europe with Asia is, uh, well, to some extent, will will uh, bring these regions further away from the United States and thus, you know, severely diminish its influence. That's great. Um, actually, your your point about the uh, origin of the current U.S.-China dynamic in the split to have China as the you know manufacturer of the iPhone while the U.S. the innovator. Um, brings me to my next question very well, which is a passage from Europe as the Western Peninsula of Greater Eurasia that really stuck out to me. Um, so, the U.S. is a corporate state defined by the excessive influence of corporations over the state, which enables China to influence Washington through Wall Street. As a prominent and influential professor in China boasted, with the return of Biden, China could rely on a network of our old friends who are at the top of America's core inner circle of power and influence. So I wanted to ask you about this um, sometimes seemingly ambiguous line between the state as the fundamental unit in the international system and the degree to which the uh, transnational capitalist class can undermine sovereignty here. For example, um, what role would you say, for example, the US-based uh, multi-trillion transnational asset management firms like BlackRock play in the international system. Um, do these uh, transnational asset management firms generally operate within the framework of U.S. imperial strategic interests, or are there divergences? Um, just to give a little bit of context here, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink is a chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is generally considered to be somewhat of a window into U.S. ruling class thought and debate. Um, but his company also invests massively in China, which has become a source of recent criticism from George Soros. So I was wondering if you could help us elaborate on this and make sense of this seeming contradiction that I, I know has confused the Well, sure. I I just it's probably easier if I take a, a, just a very quick step back because uh, in terms of how 
I, how portray region as functioning, because I argue that regions such as Europe or the transatlantic regions are geoeconomic constructs. So, and, and I compare it or develop a theory based on what happened in the 19th century with economic nationalism. Now, the basic assumption back then in the 19th century was that you needed industrialization in order to, uh, to yeah, as an intrinsic part of nation building. So, uh, so for example, when the United States it had its independence from Britain, however, as Hamilton and others recognize, if you if you want to maintain, if, if they want to maintain this peace or maintain the sovereignty, uh, they needed some uh, economic autonomy. That means, uh, well, 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 controlling uh, the key geoeconomic pillars of power. So what, what they came up with was this American system, as we all know, and it rested on three pillars. You had economic, uh, you had this well, uh, strategic industries, which would be the manufacturing base. They had the second, which was rail and ports, which are transportation corridor. And the last was a national bank, which is the financial institutions. Now, now uh, afterwards, you know, the, the, the French, the Germans, the, the Japanese, the Russians, they all began to follow a similar script in order to uh, effectively recognize that economic power was necessary to have proper sovereignty. Now, what I argue is we have the same with regions. So, uh, for example, uh, US hegemony after the Cold War, there was, no, sorry, Second World War was based on uh, well, having all the high-tech industries controlling a lot of natural resources as a strategic industry. And the second was transportation corridors across the globe. It took control over the key uh, maritime corridors. And third, it had, uh, through Bretton Woods, it controlled the main uh, development banks and also making the dollar the key currency. So it, it, this is kind of the foundation of having a global region. Now, under these conditions, uh, you can of, it's often conducive to have free trade and... and um, National interests can often uh, harmonize uh, with with uh, um, with uh, sorry yeah for free market principles harmonizes with then with national interest when when under hegemon. Now the the, the problem now is uh, as these regions begin to to lose their foundation, uh, we also see that a lot of the economic activity doesn't necessarily work in in the U.S. interest for uh, for, for 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 one. Uh, how, how do you ensure that the economic loyalties uh, or uh, well uh, serves the U.S. interests? So, so for example, a key theme has been now with the fourth industrial revolution, you have large digital companies, you know, such as Google, who are willing to work with the Chinese government, but were you know somewhat hesitant to work with the American government. So the argument was simply, you know, what's good for Silicon Valley should be good for America. So it's it's not it's it's, it's not that controversial. However, it does imply that the government has to assert some authority over private industry, which is, uh, well, which is, uh, uh, yeah, uh, well, challenging and not always an ideal route to go down. Now, um, so I, I think, uh, as, uh, as we've seen over the over, over the last uh, few years, a lot of, uh, a lot of the problems that countries like China and Russia previously had, that was, uh, they were. Uh, you know, if they, if they wanted to be competitive, they had to open up their markets to the U.S. and uh, effectively a lot of their industries and the business community would have more loyalties towards the United States. This was considered a challenge. Now, kind of the uh, the table has uh, shifted a bit. Now uh, we see that uh, uh, the U.S. has become more and more dependent on, for example, well, mainly Chinese capital. And with that, you will see some political loyalties shifting as well. And uh, the, 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 the quote you took was from one of the, 
uh, one uh, yeah professor in, in China uh, linked to the government who kind of pointed out that you know we our our money is uh, uh, through our capital we have uh, you know hands deeply into Wall Street uh, we have great influence in, in in Washington and this is something you know that we can use uh, Trump kind of disrupted this but uh, now that Biden came in his his argument was now will be well b- uh, back in play so it, it is a it is a challenge and the, the problem is it's not clear what a good solution uh, would necessarily be. Okay, great. Um, it's interesting the difference between the Trump and Biden administrations on that. Um, I just wanted to ask one more question on a similar general note there, um, which is this kind of overlap between the otherwise largely uh, antagonistic great powers. <clears throat> what role do you think Klaus Schwab's World Economic Forum plays in the international system. Um, I've been a bit con- uh, confused by Russian involvement in the organization, such as with the cybersecurity event, Cyber Polygon, considering the West's frequent antagonism and ac- accusations of cyber attacks against Russia. So I, was, I just uh, wanted to ask what your opinion of, of the World Economic Forum and I guess this great reset, uh, how that interacts with these big multipolar dynamics. Uh, it's, it's an excellent uh, question. And, uh, to be honest, I'm a bit uncertain about, uh, this myself, how, uh, what, what, what role this will play, uh, when it, when this expression first came out, the great reset, uh, you know, it was a little bit dismissed as some conspiracy theory, but then you see, uh, different world leaders, one after the other begin to cite this. So, uh, well, the, the great reset is, um, is a reference to, uh, yeah, some of the, uh, well, socioeconomic and political consequences of this new fourth industrial revolution, because um, with these new technologies coming out, there's a, a growing um, a concentration of, of of economic power, and it it um, it, it shifts uh, how how society is structured, and uh, and um, I guess some of it has uh, been received. Uh, well, possibly being a bit dystopian because uh, uh, Klaus Schwab been quite uh, open that uh, those who adapt will benefit and those who do not will suffer. Now, uh, so it, 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 it's uncertain to me how how this is going to uh, play out. But if you want to look at some of the political instability in the U.S., it's it's uh, it's, it's worth looking at how uh, um, well. Well, the, the failure of, of of organizing society according to new uh, technologies and the new distribution of power. So, for example, uh, we talked before about how China, um, how China uh, and and the U.S. had this new uh, division of labor in the late '80s and early 2000s. So, the simple argument, uh, the simple formula, was similar to that of what Britain had with uh, the Europeans and the U.S. in the 1840s. It suspended the um, um, the Corn Laws, in which uh, will repeal the Corn Laws. So the, the main division of labor was the British would make manufactured goods, the Europeans would make agriculture, and this would kind of cement British leadership. Now, uh, to some extent, this is what the U.S. also did with China and the rest of the world in the early 90s. Uh, the, the trade agreements gave the U.S. Uh, more intellectual property rights, extended and better enforced. 
and, and in return, the U.S. kind of outsourced a lot of its manufacturing industry. Now, this kind of makes sense. The, you have a division of labor where the U.S. will then dominate the high ends of global value chains. However, what they forget often is that, uh, you know, these are not just uh, numbers. There are also people. So uh, a lot of these people at the center of uh, uh, in the middle class of the United States, uh, they, they all lost their jobs. And, you know, instead of stepping up into higher skilled, higher wage, work so they'll becoming engineers uh, many took a step down so into low wage lower wage and lower skilled work so you had this um, under this division of labor you had uh, you know e either rich or poor and it, it created a division in society now this this already made the deal poor uh, but then in the long run um, it, it became even worse because the china was able to use its uh, um, it's a trade surplus to you know subsidize uh, uh, its own industries to climb a global chain the global value chains and thus also take the higher end of global value chains so it's um, it, it's the, the, that on its own has has disrupted society so we can also look how will how will this great reset uh, well what, what does it mean I think uh, uh, it encompasses how how socially uh, well according to Schwab at least that the uh, people will have to accept owning less, um, and this, you know, is supposed to make them more happy. Uh, the economic uh, power will concentrate even more. It will take more of a globalist uh, format. Uh, but I, I have to admit, I'm not. I don't. I don't see his visions playing out the way he, he thought it would, because it will simply be too many social economic disruptions and. Uh, and this um, yeah, global sentiment, it doesn't have uh, the cooperation of all the main actors uh, involved either. Interesting. Um, and could you talk a little bit more about AI? I know you've done a lot of really uh, interesting research in your book on great power politics and the fourth industrial revolution. Um, the competition for artificial intelligence or strategic cutting edge um, among China, the US and Russia, and their national security strategies. And something I've, I've heard you mention that I also think is very interesting is the possibility that um, elements within the US policy making or ruling class uh, elite um, consider some degree of, of greater authoritarianism uh, beneficial for strategic purposes and competition with, with those countries? Uh, yeah, I think. Well, uh, well, there is a bit of a, a dilemma. I mean, in the United States in the past, they've had, uh, when, uh, you know, when the oil companies became too big, they could be uh, broken up. Now, uh, in the international uh, trade, you do have, or in the international economy, you do have a dilemma. If, if companies become uh, you you want companies to be big and powerful, you know, such as your the, the tech giants, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, and all of them, and uh, because and Google, because when when they're big, they're able to be more competitive in the international markets. However, when they become this big, they can also begin to dominate the political system. So the the question then becomes, uh, as many Americans have concern now, what 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 do you do when these tech giants uh, that grew up are able to disrupt? Uh, uh, are, are able to become more authoritarian, uh, more in, in, intervene more in domestic politics. 
Now, this is, uh, you're referencing a different book, of course, that's the Great Politics and the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And uh, that, that actually came out early this year. When I wrote it, uh, many things haven't happened yet. For example, um, uh, this uh, event when um, <laughs> when the, 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 the leaks from Hunter Biden laptop, laptop came out and you saw you know, Facebook, uh, Twitter intervening and effectively censoring uh, news uh, revelations uh, because they thought it would impact the US election. This is very much unprecedented. So you already see that this is a big issue that you have these very, very powerful companies now, uh, well, effectively censoring the president of the country. Now, you have all these discussions, should you cut them down in size, uh, split them up? But of course, then they will not be able to uh, assert the same authority in international markets and they would hand over leadership to China. So this is, um, uh, this is a this is a bit of a dilemma. So uh, the, the common solution would be then to have this uh, yeah, keep these uh, giants at an arm length, so tie them closely to government. But this then begins to resemble more and more, uh, you know, what was what was defined as a fascist political economy when you have <laughs> the corporate interests mm -hmm. and political interests go go hand in hand. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, I think I'm, uh, I forgot your question, the initial one. Oh uh, no, you're doing it. Excellent. It's, I guess I asked two questions, so it can be kind of a little confusing yeah. there because I linked the um, strategic, you know, the fourth industrial uh, revolutions, how these changing technological realities are, you know, having an impact on geopolitical dynamics, but, which is what your book largely focuses on. I just wanted to talk about AI specifically. And part of the reason why I linked it to authoritarianism was I, I believe it's a uh, it was from a FOIA request, and a journalist named Whitney Webb wrote an article on how the National Security Council for Artificial Intelligence, which uh, involves Google CEO, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt, um, discussed uh, the need for certain, like, greater control over tech and, and what could be perceived as authoritarianism in uh, and using competition with China as the justification. So I, I, I was thinking those two yeah. a little bit, but well, yeah. I, I do refer to the authoritarian advantage because in the past you had the often competitive advantage uh, being given to uh, to more uh, lib uh, liberal powers, the one that were opened up, uh, able to decentralize. Uh, again, this was one part of the problem with the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, with the computer and everything, it's it, it thrives in a decentralized system. And uh, but but what I argue is that you have more now. Uh, often uh, you see more and more of an authoritarian advantage. That is, uh, if you want artificial uh, intelligence, um, well, in terms of artificial intelligence, this is now set to remake um, most industries. I mean, a, a lot of the innovations of the future now will be, you know, any particular industry plus AI, because uh, anything you can automate, uh, uh, yeah, you, you effectively need, uh, artificial intelligence. Now, in order to develop artificial intelligence, you need a lot of computing power and a lot of data. Now, the, now what, what you see, the authoritarian advantage is you have more ability to, to well, collect any data you want, uh, which, which we've seen in China. There's, no, there's nothing you can't really collect and there's less restraints. But also you see more opportunities to experiment. You can put out uh, entirely new payment systems and uh, uh, you roll them out, and if it doesn't work, you can just roll it right back again. And there's more um, room for maneuver to some extent. So there's a more pressure for <laughs> not just the technologies themselves, 
but also for governments to to yeah be a bit more um, authoritarian uh, in, in the way they behave. So and also going back to what you said about uh, um, Klaus Schwab, this is uh, this is I guess that's what my, my main takeaway from the book. This is a very authoritarian. Um, view of how he envisions the world to change and indeed also how advocates for the world to change but um, uh, but, but he does uh, you know pick up on some real issues that is uh, although I don't necessarily agree with his uh, solutions uh, but this uh, old so since the first industrial revolution we always had this question you know who, who controls the means of production and uh, what we now see is increasingly uh, with these new technologies, uh, we see the capital beginning to decouple from labor. This is something we, we saw even after the first industrial revolution, the recognition that, uh, uh, you know, as new technologies are introduced, uh, um, the, there's a higher um, productivity. However, um, the, return on, the return on the productivity, the revenue tends to concentrate in the capital ownership as opposed to labor. Now, this has been a trend. This was recognized also by the free market capitalists, by the way. So Adam Smith, David Ricardo. Uh, but <coughs> sorry, this is why you had labor unions and other ways of rebalancing the relationship between capital and labor. Now, what you've seen with these new technologies, I mean, these new uh, digital companies, they, uh, they're they much bigger and rely on fewer workers. And uh, by its very nature, by automating the cognitive, we see that uh, um, this trend will only... Uh, keep intensifying. So the the question is, uh, who who should the, you know, control the means of production? Sounds like a very much of a Marxist slogan, but uh, it, it can it's, uh, it can either intensify and uh, concentrate in the hands of a few uh, oligarchs. So you know, a few Zuckerbergs who then uh, become more and more powerful and have greater and greater influence over the state, and uh, or you know, the state can try to. Um, you know, nationalize some of this and assert its authority over it. But uh, like the case for, uh, you know, simply the free market organizing itself, it's becoming uh, less sustainable. So, um, so uh, again, I, I I don't try to give a solution what what direction to take, but it's it's worth uh, recognizing that this will be uh, the the main the main problem uh, going forward. Um, so. Uh, Sorry for that long answer. <laughs> no, it was great. Thank you. Thank you. And to switch gears, but also um, it's still on the theme of some of these alarming dynamics uh, looming that you've discussed. I, I've seen you do a lot of interesting um, analysis of the Arctic as a new arena of geopolitical competition. I know you're based in Norway, which gives you a unique vantage point for that. So I was hoping you could you know, help us uh, understand what's going on there and how the melting Arctic can have an impact on great power competition. Well, it, it goes in the, for, it uh, fits within the theme of uh, uh, creating this uh, greater Eurasian region. So again, uh, uh, after, uh, you know, a few hundred years, 300 years now of Russia attempting to join the West, it's like I mentioned, it's now, heading more towards uh, China and, and seeking to construct with China this uh, greater Eurasian Union, uh, great, sorry, greater Eurasian region uh, as an alternative. Now, in order to do this, again, it consists of this, as I mentioned before, these three pillars of, of geoeconomic power. So obviously uh, combined, you know, you have China with uh, the high-tech industries, you have uh, 
Russia with a lot of natural resources, weapon systems, but also Russia has a lot of those, uh, one of the few countries in the world who have autonomous uh, digital systems, uh, uh, which many people don't know. It has uh, uh, it, its main, uh, you know, search engines, self-driving cars, uh, uh, servers, uh, uh, search engines, uh, emails, uh, uh, artificial intelligence, like across the board, all, all, all of it's, uh, it doesn't, the, the largest digital companies in, the US, in China, Russia is not, um, uh, you know, Google or Amazon or Facebook, it, it has all uh, domestic systems, which are uh, much larger and much more uh, established in Russia. Now, obviously, this, they're still much less competent than, than, than China. But, but again, the, the economic aspect is, uh, sorry, the technological uh, component is quite important. Now, the, uh, you know, jumping to the third one, obviously, we have all this financial mechanism where they work together to de-dollarize, have their own uh, development uh, banks, uh, and well, a new payment system, everything. Now, what you're referring to is effectively that, that second pillar, that is uh, um, new transportation corridors. And this is also something they're investing heavily in. So China, for example, is uh, has now you know, put trillions of dollars into this uh, Belt and Road Initiative, which are new transportation corridors by land and sea um, under Chinese control, so not, not, uh, not, not American. And Russia is also pushing this. It has... Uh, you know, southeast, uh, sorry, south, uh, north-south uh, corridor uh, from Russia down to India. It also has an east-west corridor between Europe and Asia. Now, what is quite interesting uh, as one component of this is uh, the Arctic corridor, or as the Russians call it, the Northern Sea Route, which is now to be developed, and Russia uh, and China refers to as the Polar Silk Road, just to conceptualize it into this Belt and Road Initiative. So what, uh, what this can offer is uh, faster and cheaper mode of transportation from uh, between Europe and Asia. And this is quite an interesting um, uh, route. It's considered, well, conceptualized then as the, you know, the roof of Eurasia. And, um, and uh, it's also then uh, a, a key transportation corridor, which is completely with, uh, outside of the US control. So, um, uh, so it's, uh, well, f for Russia at least, it's a great opportunity. One, they will be less under pressure for the, from the United States, but also uh, as a project with China, they will be able to have more equality in the relationship, despite uh, given that it's uh, across their uh, territory. So it's, um, uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's many new initiatives to, again, tie together uh, Europe and, and Asia into one large continent. And it's not hard to see why, why this is of interest, by the way, to Russia and China, because uh, in the unipolar order after the Cold War, Russia and China never you know, uh, found its uh, place, that is to have a effectively voice uh, at the table. Now, uh, Russia was always afraid it would be at the periphery of Europe and periphery of Asia. But if you have this greater Eurasian construct, it suddenly is put in the center. And similarly, China, it, it uh, you know, didn't want to, uh, well, for all this time, it, it uh, pursued what it called, uh, you know, peaceful rise, which was, you know, not to attract too much attention from the United States and folks internally, but at some point it would grow too large for a U.S.-led region and it would have to challenge it. So it really needs, you know, Russia as well to uh, integrate this greater Eurasian space. So it's... Um, uh, the, the Arctic therefore plays uh, yeah, qu quite an important role, and uh, 
uh, yeah, to the dismay now of many European countries. Uh, this was a region which we thought that, uh, you know, uh, we had first tried to work with the Russians because the Arctic is full of energy reserves. It's a great potential for a transportation corridor. But after, you know, seven years now of uh, anti-Russian sanctions, uh, Russia has effectively given up on, you know, this previous greater European initiative and now instead looks to the east. So all of these uh, projects in the Arctic, which was previously earmarked or reserved for uh, Western powers, have now been uh, either, you know, uh, given to domestic industries or handed over to the Chinese. So it's a... Uh, uh, it's, it's a huge development, uh, something that, uh, in my opinion, does not get the attention it deserves. Yeah, definitely. Um, and on the theme of Europe as, as the center of, of this uh, big frame geopolitical competition, I wanted to ask you about your conception of France as a Gaullist power um, and how France could be a important player in charting a course of uh, a greater degree of autonomy for Europe, um, potentially on the political forces influencing Macron, and just as a recent example of the ramifications of the AUKUS dispute. So yeah, if we could talk about France. A few minutes. Well, uh, well, again, when I, when I wrote this book, so AUKUS hadn't happened yet, but they kind of uh, support uh, the thesis put forward in the book, which is, yeah, uh, as you mentioned, uh, France was, you know, uh, un under Charles de Gaulle, it was very uncomfortable with being, uh, with having uh, Europe drawn into this transatlantic region because it uh, meant that Europe would be, uh, you know, economically, to some extent, culturally uh, subordinated to the United States. So he was very fiercely opposed to this. And while he was, you know, very much for national sovereignty, so European cooperation as a mode of uh, shedding some of this excessive reliance on the US. Now, what has happened over the, uh, what has happened uh, now in the, in the late years would be uh, with the rise of China is the, the whole cost benefit relationship with, uh, with the partnership with the US has been changed because now that the US looks towards Asia or China more specifically, um, the U.S. resources focus and priority will be given to the East. So there's less focus on Europe. And at the same time, um, uh, America keeps putting demands on the Europeans to follow its policies. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, go after, uh, be confrontational against uh, China, uh, continue the confrontation against Russia, put sanctions on Iran. And a lot of this is now... Um, yeah, seem to be harmful then, especially to the French. So from their perspective, the U.S. is able to deliver less, but it demands more. So uh, so France has been leading this initiative now to say, you know, Europe needs, uh, again, a very Golanist way, uh, Europe needs uh, to develop strategic autonomy, uh, which means uh, not to be so dependent on American uh, economics, economic power and military. So it should start to take care of itself, um, which means develop its own industries, uh, its own uh, economic uh, architecture to reduce reliance on the U.S. It should the Europe should develop its uh, well, uh, develop its own army that is an EU army independent of the United States. And uh, part of the idea is then uh, if the Europeans can become more autonomous, then they can form more independent or pursue more independent foreign policy, which uh, then would suggest. Uh, yeah, a different policy towards both China 
and Russia. So this is something that has uh, changed uh, over time. Now, there's been some efforts to find way of working working this out, this divergence of interest. But as we see, um, uh, there's uh, uh, the, the simply the, the, the interests are not there. And NATO has tried to, well, the Europeans have tried to increase their value to the Americans by, you know, saying, yes, NATO will also go after China now. However, it's, uh, it's, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not enough effectively. It's, uh, the Europeans don't have capabilities there. They don't really see the same challenges from China as the United States do. So, so while they can try to stop it, all the systemic pressures are pushing for Europe and the US to continue to split. And uh, the AUKUS deal you referred to was uh, yeah, a perfect uh, example of, of what happens, which is uh, uh, France had a huge uh, submarine deal with Australia and uh, this would also give uh, Australia, uh, um, uh, France, more of a footprint in in the Asian region. Now, what happened was the United States and Britain came in and had some secret talks with Australia, and they decided to cancel the deal with the French and uh, instead replace it with a U.S.-British uh, Australian deal, so AUKUS, and. Uh, so for the French, they were very much stabbed in the back, and they, and they, um, yeah, they don't take kindly to this, and they, and they kind of confirms their previous thesis. If you remember Macron, he referred to NATO as brain dead, which is um, yeah the way people didn't talk about NATO before, but uh, but now this is kind of further convinced them that uh, you know the, the, this disruption between the U.S. and EU it was not merely a sign of uh, Trump, because everyone thought things would be better when Biden came, but rather it, Trump was merely a reflection of a new system coming into place. And, uh, and you know, Biden, Clinton, the, they're all kind of recognizing that uh, this has to be the priorities. Awesome. Well, I apologize. I realize we've gone a little bit over time. I, I could ask you about this, this stuff all day, and I really appreciate you coming to talk to us, Dr. Dyson. Um, and I highly recommend anyone listening to check out uh, Dr. Dyson's work, his recent books, Europe as the Western Peninsula of Greater Eurasia, um, Great Power Politics and the Fourth Industrial Revolution. They perform, they, they provide a really phenomenal backdrop for understanding this really confusing, um, fascinating era that we're living. So thank you so much. Thank you, I appreciate it. Big shout out to Thomas Aaron Music for the new intro and outro music. And please check us out at citizentruth.org. Much love.